Well, this morning we have a guest speaker, Dwight Miller. For many of you, he is not so much a guest. He is more family than anything. Dwight is the associate, the associate, don't tell Skim I said that, uh, the associate pastor at Grace Fellowship Church. Um, and Dwight and I had, over the last several years, been able to work together uh, in the youth group at Grace Fellowship. And also, we were both ordained on the same day as elders at Grace Fellowship, so we got to walk through that process together. Dwight is a dear brother of mine and of many of you I know as well. Um, if there's two words I would describe Dwight with, it would be the word humble and gentle. He's big, but he's humble and he's gentle. Most importantly, Dwight is married to his beautiful wife, Candace, and they have two little ones, Isaiah and Faith. And brother, we're really glad that you're here this morning to preach God's word to us, so come and, and preach. Believe it or not, that's my first intro in a church that I was visiting, so thank you for that, brother. Uh, if you will, just allow me to pray to our God uh, for us. Dear Lord, as we open our hearts and minds, I pray, Lord God, that you would fill it with your word. And as I open my mouth to speak to your people, I pray that you would fill it with your word. And then I pray, Lord, as we leave here, we would take these truths with us so that we might fill the world with your glory. Please do that for us now, Lord, because that's why we've gathered, for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, that, that glorious and holy one that we pray. Amen. So I have a question for you. Have you ever considered just how many people and things that you place your trust in on a regular basis. So I just prayed, now I, I really did pray, but you had to trust that I was praying to Yahweh our God and not Pazuzu or you know, Krishna or something like that. You had to trust that I was praying to Jehovah our God. And then you said amen because you, you put that trust in me and what I prayed. You also, this morning, you got up, put on your Sunday best, and you got in your car and started your car, trusting that your battery would be fully charged and ready to go. You, you also, you know, if you're in school or something like that, you've got group projects. And so you join with your group, maybe it's people you don't know, and you go home, you do your work, you stay up late. You also got to trust that your, your team is doing their part. They're not just Wikipedia warriors scraping things together at the last minute. You've got to trust that. You know, Peter said I was, I was big. I'm getting big. But you, you, <laughs> you, I'm sure this has happened to some of you where you've made something uh, marvelous, like a nice lettuce uh, salad, romaine lettuce salad, and you sit down in front of the TV and click the news on, and it says uh, romaine lettuce recall because of E. coli. <laughs> you know? Those things happen. But it begs the question, is anything reliable? Is anything trustworthy? And that's kind of what we're going to be looking at today. David says, yes, someone is reliable. Someone is trustworthy. In Psalm 62, David has three groups of people that he speaks to. And when he 
begins to speak, it's as if he takes his position on the wall of a fortress. So I just want you to imagine that David is preparing for combat, conflict, opposition, and he takes his position on the wall of a fortress. And he looks out and he sees that first group, and he he acknowledges that that first group, they're enemies. They're, They're against David. They want to see his downfall. I'm not pointing to this side of the room. That's not what I mean. But, but David's opposition is, is one of the, the groups of people that he speaks to. And then David is going to do this, this strikingly important thing where after he looks at his enemies, he turns inward and he says, David, you got to remember to trust the Lord. David, you got to remember to trust the Lord. And then he's going to look behind him and he acknowledges that God's people are looking up now. They're looking up at the, the wall of the fortress and they're saying, David, what do you got for us? We need some, we need some encouragement. We need some, some faith. And then he's going to look to them and speak. And then once he has his enemy's attention and once his antenna is up waiting for God's word and once God's people are looking at him, he's going to say, everyone, you got to trust God. So, so David's speaking to three groups, but he's got the same message. And that message is God is trustworthy. David begins. He takes his position as the preacher. He's standing on the fortress wall and he looks over and he sees his enemies arrayed against him. And David says, hey, enemies, I trust God. He says, as as it were, this is where I am standing. This is where I'm positioning myself. I'm standing in the truth of what I know about my God. We don't actually know what caused David to write this psalm. He doesn't give us that in the, the opening but we, knew, we do know that David had a ton of enemies. David had lots of men and, and, and people just seeking his life as he went about being a little boy, as he went about being a young man, as he went about being king. David had people always constantly seeking his life. Now you might think, if all of these people are identifying this, this thing in David to the degree that they want to kill him, maybe David is, is secretly a bit of a jerk. Maybe he's a bit pompous. But we're told repeatedly that David is righteous. God calls David righteous. Jesus calls David righteous. So the problem is not with David. The problem is with the people around him, the unrighteous people looking at David's righteousness, and and they want to destroy that. They want to kill that. Does that sound like anyone? Christian, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you for my sake. Jesus, a righteous man, was persecuted. Christians, righteous people, representing Jesus, will be persecuted. Now, I think the ambiguity of this psalm is one of its strengths. It doesn't tell us the the purpose for the writing, and I think that's what makes it strong. You can preach it in any context. It's not simply to be applied to one situation. Let's look at how David begins in verse 1. David says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Right away, you can see the great trust that David has in his God. He says, For God alone my soul waits. Now what doesn't he say? He doesn't say, for God and and a strong angel. He doesn't say, for God and the archangel. He doesn't say, for God and a strong army, for God and a new job, for God and a new spouse. He doesn't say any of that. He says, for God alone. 
my soul waits. David is waiting for God alone. David looks over the wall and he sees his enemies. They're preparing for the attack. Their battering rams are in position. They're ready to strike, ready to break down his wall. David says, you enemies, I hope you know what you're in for because my trust is in God. He says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. And that's my question for you. When troubles come, Christian, when persecution rises up against you at work, at home, where do you place your trust? Now, David says here that he turned to the Lord. He trusted the Lord. But where do you turn? Is it, is it emotional outburst, anger, sadness? Is it drinking? Is it some kind of sexual gratification? Or Christian, do you turn to the Lord? Notice also the idea of waiting patiently. It's a common refrain in the Psalms. Just think of the many places where we're told to wait. For example, Psalm 38, verse 15. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer Psalm 130, verse 5, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. Psalm 27, verse 14, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. David understands that God does not work according to David's schedule. David's not ringing a bell and God shows up. He's not Jeffrey the butler from from Fresh Prince. David knows that God is not beholden to him. But David can, with confidence, say, from him comes my salvation. For David, this waiting has purpose. This, this isn't a kind of, you know, que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be kind of waiting. David knows that when God shows up, when God shows up in the midst of David's patience, God will be on his side. David knows his God and he trusts him for that. David can say in verse 2, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. This is why he can patiently wait in silence. He knows his God. He knows that his God will save him. You notice those three nicknames that David gives God in verse 3. He says, God is my rock. He says, God is my salvation. God is my fortress. It's it's not a coincidence that this this little guy who was running around in the wilderness of Palestine, hiding in in mountain places and rocky crags and caves, that this this David would now turn and say that God is his rock, rock of hiding, his, his salvation, his fortress, that He likens God to a place of safety. David has spent time with God in many trials, many places of darkness and fear and mystery. But he knows that his God works for him. He knows that this this suffering will not be any different than when Saul was chasing him through the wilderness or or whoever. When, When David's life was at risk, he turned to the Lord and God rescued him. You can also see that his trust is not blind. 
He understands that there is a real threat on his life. He's not dismissing his enemies. He says, I shall not be greatly shaken. He is expecting some disruption, but not enough to topple him. He's saying to his enemies, you might win some small victories, but in the end, God will win the battle. In verse 3 and 4, he actually introduces us to his enemies. He tells us what they're like. We learn that they're, they're mean, they're evil, they're deceptive, they're opportunistic. David says in verse 3, How long will all of you attack a man to batter him, like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? This is David's way of saying, these are the type of people that they kick you when, they're, when you're down. If you, if you trip and fall in front of them, they get a couple of kicks in. These people are opportunistic. They're waiting for David's downfall so that they can say, now is the time to strike. This is when we can get our revenge on David. Look at how David continues in verse 4. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. I came here to Canada in the winter of... Uh, 1993, and The Lion King came out the following summer, and it was the first movie that I ever watched in Canada, and it's the first movie that ever made me cry. <laughs> now, I, I can imagine you're thinking about the part that made everyone cry, but when I, when I sat in the theater and I saw these lions playing around, I thought, this is amazing, this is great, there's no sorrow here, until you get to that scene where the stampede is over and and, uh, sorry, the stampede is, is going on, and, and, and uh, Mufasa jumps out of the stampede, and he holds on, and he's climbing up, and then Scar, his brother, appears over top of that cliff. Does anyone remember what he says as he tossed him from the, the cliff? He says, long live the king. He says that in the midst of murdering his brother. And I knew that it was animated lions, but I wept. <laughs> I wept. That was, the, for me, the first big like, picture of deception. I had never seen anything like that in, in my six years of living. That was, that, was, that was intense. But you see that this is kind of how David's enemies are, are operating. These men, with their lies and cowardly deeds, they're acting just like Scar. They're sneaking around and going behind David's back, trying to orchestrate his downfall. And you can see that deception isn't simply a means to an end for them. They actually take pleasure in their deception. Verse 4, the second half of verse 4 tells us, they take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. They're smiling in David's face, but they're hiding daggers behind their backs. This is the kind of evil that David is up against. Take, for example, Psalm 55. You don't have to turn there. Just listen. Listen to what David says in verse 12 and 14. He says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you. A man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, we used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. 
Listen to how he continues in, in verse 20, 21. My companion stretched out his hand against his friends. He violated his covenant. His speech was smooth as butter, yet war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. More often than not, we see jealousy and political intrigue behind the dangers that David is facing. For example, you have Joab, who was the commander, the general of David's army. What, what he said, David said. And yet Joab was responsible for the murder of so many. He murdered Abner, Amasa, even Absalom, David's son. And then he would eventually betray David later in his life when he joined with Adonijah's rebellion. Now, Joab was pretty bad, but think also about the Saul's and Ahithophel's and Absalom's and Adonijah's and Ziba's. All of these men at one point or another, they turn on David and they seek his downfall. These were the kinds of ruthless men who would smile in your face and stab you in the back. That's actually the tactic that Joab used when he murdered Abner. He brought him in for a hug with a smile on his face, and there was a dagger in his other hands, friends. Before Abner knew it, he was laying on the ground with a dagger in his stomach. These are the kinds of men who surround David's throne. Now, David ends this verse with a selah. It's like he wants us to pause and consider this kind of enemy, this kind of slimy, conniving, deceptive person, the hidden dagger tucked behind their back, even as they greet you and celebrate you to your face. This is what David is facing. And to a large extent, Christian, this is what you're facing. Just listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 and 15. Speaking about false teachers, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants too disguise themselves. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. These verses on betrayal are fulfilled perfectly in the life of Judas Iscariot. Judas, the betrayer. Judas, of whom it was said it would have been better if he had not been born. The enemies of Christ's church often appear as friends. They often appear as people doing good deeds, speaking of righteousness. Christian, they know your language. They can have conversations with you. But what you mean when you say righteousness, what you mean when, when you say justification, they mean something else. When they come with their good deeds and their, their talk of love and righteousness, friends, just know that these false teachers, they, they have behind their backs, they're holding them with a tight knuckle grip, these doctrines of demons. They'll say things like, of course Christ is enough for me and my good works. They'll say things like, oh, how I love the cross of Jesus Christ and the promise of financial prosperity. They, they come bringing these deceptive doctrines. I mean, if you need convincing, 
Just consider that Judas attempted to betray the Lord of all creation with a kiss. Where do you think that idea came from? That wasn't the high priest's idea. That was Judas' idea. Now David looks over the wall of the fortress and he says all of this to his enemies. But then in verse 5, he turns inwardly and he knows that now having surveyed his enemies, he must look inwardly and remind himself of what's true. So after shouting at his enemies, he, he says to himself, Hey soul, trust in God. David has to remind himself of how trustworthy God is. And you'll notice that in verse 5, David basically repeats what he said in verse 1. It's a slight change. Tell me if you notice it. Verse 5 says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is in him. Now look at verse 1. For God alone, my soul, waits in silence, from him comes my salvation. Do you see that, that slight change there? He went from declaring truth in verse 1 to declaring truth to himself. He went from stating what was just true, what was simply true, to saying, David, now you must, must believe this. Now you must put your faith in this, David. Now, it's one thing to know the truth in your head. But sometimes when you're struggling against the battering ram of sin and the world, you have to get the truth into your own heart. You won't always have, have a preacher with you. It's not always going to be Sunday morning. Sometimes it's, it's Wednesday afternoon and, and you're just looking at the end of the week thinking, when is this going to be over? That's when you need to preach the gospel to yourself. You've got to remind yourself that God is trustworthy. Friends, I wonder, do you do that? Do you make it a point of reminding yourself what's true about God when everything around you seems to just be falling apart? When, when you're having one of those Murphy's Law days where, where nothing is going right, everything that can go wrong is going wrong, do you remind yourself what's true about God? David continues to preach to us, uh, sorry, to himself in verses 6 and 7. David says, He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. David is saying, God is my only hope. David isn't convinced of his own strength. That's why David is so focused on God right now. He knows that there is weakness in himself. He's focusing on what's true because that's where his help is. When David thinks about his, his suffering, he, he can't help but turn to his Lord and look for salvation. You might think David is just pulling this out of a vacuum. He's just kind of working this up. But David is actually speaking these truths to himself based on personal experience. Here's just one example. If you have a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel 23, uh, verse 24 and 29. Uh, this is an event that takes place in David's life while Saul was hunting him in the wilderness. Verse 24 begins, Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Arabah, to the south of Jeshimon. 
And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went up one side of the mountain and David went and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul as Saul and his men were closing in on David and and they were, uh, sorry, on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, that place was called, here's the name, the Rock of Escape. And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En have any of you kids here ever played tag? Does anyone here consider themselves a really good tag player? Have you ever had a moment where the, the it kid is just on your heels? You're running, you're out of breath, you're about to collapse, everything in you is burning, you're sweating, and he's just, he reaches out and he's just about to touch you, but then his mom shows up <laughs> and says, hey, it's time to go home. And just like that, you're safe. It's not your own power. You didn't do anything. You were running, about to be caught. Their mom shows up and saves you. Has that ever happened to any of you? That happened to me a ton when I was a kid, but it's, but it's because I'm slow. <laughs> it's because I'm slow. But, but that's kind of what happens to David here. Saul is chasing David. Saul is on one side of the mountain. David is going up the other. And Saul can see David. He's, he's hot on his heels. He's ready to capture him. But a messenger shows up, and Saul knows that his top priority has to be the people of Israel. Even though he has this vendetta that he needs to enact on David, he knows that his priority is to protect the people of Israel. He, he doesn't do a great job, but you know, he knows that that's his job. And so he leaves off chasing David because this messenger showed up. Kind of makes you wonder, where did this messenger come from? Who sent the Philistines to attack the land at that, at that moment? This is the kind of experience, though, that David is remembering as he pens this meditation. He knows that God truly is a rock. And in fact, in verse 7, he, he says, God, my mighty rock. Speaking personally, I too have moments where that trust just isn't there. That, that faith just isn't there. And sometimes what I'll do is I'll just take a, a blank sheet of paper and I'll just start writing on that paper things that God has done. And I'll start with the big things, you know, salvation, creation, all of these things that God has worked on a universal scale. And then I'll start going to the smaller things. You know, I'll, I'll think, I woke up this morning and write that down. And I'll think, you know, as I've been sitting here sulking and filling out this piece of paper, I've been breathing God's air. <laughs> Dwight, you fool. <laughs> and I'll write that down. And you know, you get to the end of a piece of paper like that and you just look back and you see all that God has done, friends, and, and you just know that your God is trustworthy. What David is trying to teach us here is that you have to develop present trust based on past deliverance. And if you're not talking to yourself, the temptation is always there to be listening to what the enemy is telling you, that your God is not trustworthy. Where is God? I think that's why verse 8 is so explicit. If 
you're still in Psalm 62, verse 8 is the only imperative in this entire psalm. It's as if David now, standing on the wall, he's still preaching, and he's spoken to his enemies, he's encouraged himself, he's encouraged David, and he looks back and he sees God's people just longing for a word, just waiting to hear what he says. And David looks at God's people and he says, Hey, church, trust God. After considering how God has helped him, David can confidently say in verse 8, Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. He says, trust him at all times when things are good and you're happy and and joyful and you thought you were going to get a parking ticket, but you didn't. Trust God in your joy. When things are bad and you're angry and you're mournful and you're weak and the temptation is there to just give up, he says, trust God. At all times, Christian, trust your God. And then David says, pour out your heart. He says, pray. And pray regardless of your emotional state. Don't be constrained simply by how you feel. Just look at the prayer life of Hannah. If you've got a Bible, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, Hannah is the prophet Samuel's mother. And if there was ever a woman in the Bible who prayed, it was Hannah. If you're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 1 verse, we're going to look at verse 11. This is Hannah's prayer. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. She prayed this prayer in her moment of brokenness and sadness. When she was at her lowest point, she prayed to God. And and don't don't be confused. Don't, you know, gloss over this. This wasn't a pretty or elegant or well-prepared written prayer. The people who saw her thought she was drunk. It's probably true that Hannah was weeping, probably had makeup running down, maybe some snot running down. You know those kinds of tears. You're not, you're not in control of yourself. Your emotions have taken over, but in that moment of sadness, she prayed. Eli thought she was drunk. He was the priest. He sits there watching people pray all day, and even he thought she was drunk. Look, look at what he says in verse 14. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And then Hannah responds in verse 15 and 16 and says, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. What was she doing? It tells us there, she was pouring out her very heart, her very soul before God. And it didn't look pretty. She was praying and doing exactly what David was saying in in Psalm 62, verse 8. And God heard this kind of prayer 
And God answered her. God answered her. Hannah conceived a son. So after God answers her prayer, what do you think she does? She goes back to the temple and she prays again. If you're still there in, verse, in chapter 1, just turn to the next page. I, th- I think it's the next page. But we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. It says, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. She's going to continue with ten verses of some of the most beautiful adoration in the whole Bible. Here was a woman who had a prayer life. Here was a woman who knew how to pray. She prayed when she was sad, and she prayed when she was happy. She prayed quietly and thoughtfully with a bit of of tears, maybe some snot, when she was sad and, and the Lord had not showed up for her at that moment, she prayed. And then when the Lord showed up and she conceived, she she returned to the temple singing God's praises, praying to God once again. Did you notice the use of that title for God? The Rock? It's it's like, sorry, Dwayne Johnson, that's not your name. (laughs) That's a borrowed name. God is the Rock. This, my friends, is an example of a saint pouring her heart out to her God. Just picture, if you will, just a full cup. It's, it's full to the brim, one little shake and it'll spill. And, and this cup is full of your heart's longings and desires and expectations and heartbreak. And you just take this cup and just pour it out before the Lord. That's what this kind of prayer is like. Just taking that cup and spilling it on the ground before God. This is who I am, Lord. This is what's, what's bothering me. This is where I'm weak, Lord. You can pray like that. You can pray no matter your emotional state. You can pray in your sadness and your happiness. God hears those prayers and and everything in between. Don't bottle up your feelings or just bring them to friends. Pray to your Lord. Trust in your God. So church, trust God and pray to him in the midst of your trouble. David gives us another selah at the end of this verse. Another moment to pause and consider. Another moment to pause and ponder. You may remember that the first one was at verse 4 where David was just, you know, describing his enemies and telling you what kind of people were uh, uh, harassing him. Well, this moment of pause and ponder comes right after David has told us some truth about God. He wants us to pause and consider our God. Christian, Hannah's rock and David's rock is your rock. I want to remind you this morning that one greater than David has brought about true salvation. We not only have a greater message than David, we have a greater messenger than David. Listen to how this messenger calls us to trust God. In Matthew 7, verse 24 to 27, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, 
but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the same rain fell, the same floods came, the same winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. If your trust is firmly fixed on the salvation of our God, on the rock of our salvation in Jesus Christ, then Christian, you can rejoice along with David, along with Hannah. The storms of life have no power over you. You're going to be shaken, but you're not going to fall. You can say like David when the storms come, I shall not be greatly shaken. Life is going to have its small victories over you, but in the end, your God will be victorious. But if you're here this morning and and you don't know this rock of salvation, I wonder, aren't you concerned that your house is resting on shifting sand? Don't you know that when the storms of life come, your house will be thrown down. You can trust him too. You can trust him right here, right now, for the very first time. The Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's available to you right now. You can trust this God too. Trust God, friends. As we're going to see in the next couple of verses, nothing else is trustworthy. Now, David is still standing at the, the top of that fortress. Now he has the, the, the attention of his enemies. He's got the attention of the church. David is ready to speak. And he looks at everyone and he says, Hey, everyone, trust God. Just look there at verse 9. He says, Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of highest state are a delusion. In the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than a breath. This verse tells us that God is not compelled to act solely based on your circumstance. There's nothing inherently spiritual about being minimalistic or poor, and there's nothing righteous about being rich. There's nothing blessed about being rich. David is saying here that you can't trust people from either spectrum of life. You can't trust in the the piety of the poor, and you can't trust in the righteousness of the rich. They are nothing but puffs of air. He says, in the balances they go up. But you can trust God. You know what else you can't trust? Money. In verse 10, David says, Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Don't look for money to save you. Don't look for the stability or comfort of money. It's not real. We have volumes written from 
millionaires and billionaires who tell you that it's not enough. It doesn't bring happiness. It doesn't bring everlasting joy. Solomon is going to write a book after David that says, I tried everything in my riches. And there's, there's, it's all vanity. It's worthless. Can't trust your circumstances because they're changing. But God is always the same. Your God never changes. And so you can't trust money. It doesn't even have the same value from day to day. But you can trust God. And why can you trust God? Just look at how David closes the psalm in verse 11. He says, Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. God has spoken once, but David has heard two messages. The first thing that David hears is that God is powerful. God is powerful enough to save him from his trouble. David knows that. Because of that power, David knows that his trust is not wasted on God. God has the necessary power to fix David's situation, and he has the necessary power to fix your situation. He's not limited in his abilities. You'll notice that in the Gospels, no one ever came to Jesus and said, if you have the power, do this. They always said, Lord, if you will. It's not a problem of power. It's a problem of the will. If God wills, he will work and and do such and such. The second message David hears is that God is a God of steadfast love. That's that precious word for us again, the hesed of God. It is a reminder that God's love is certain. It's a sure promise from God. It's the same word that is used for his covenant-keeping love. David has experienced this covenant-keeping love in his own life, and so when he thinks about all that God has done for him, he can't help but think of his mercy. David knows that he doesn't deserve God's mercy, and yet he's received it. God's power is not separated from his covenant love. The reason David trusted God, even in the midst of staggering odds, is because he knew full well that God keeps his promises. You think David didn't know that he looked ridiculous swinging a leather strap against the giant? He knew how ridiculous he looked because that shouldn't have worked. And yet, through a leather strap and a little boy and some stones, God freed Israel from Philistine oppression. Noah, Abraham, David, God made covenants with many people in the Old Testament. But these were all shadows and and, and just things looking forward to a true covenant, a covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. If you've entered into that new covenant in Jesus Christ, then like David, you can trust God. That's why David can end with verse 12. For you will render to man according to his work. He knows that he has nothing to fear in judgment. He knows that the God that he trusts will save him by his power and show him his steadfast love on that day of judgment. When God acts, it will be in David's favor. And if you're a Christian, when God acts on that day, it will be in your favor. 
Saints, because of the power and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we too have this assurance. David's God is our God. And if you've put all of your trust in him, then you have nothing to fear in this present world. God's love overshadows us and his justice has been fully poured out on his son on your behalf. This is the assurance of the God truster, the one who trusts God. That is the assurance that they have. Now, Christian, car batteries die. Friends fail us. Lettuce gets recalled. David reminds us this morning that in the midst of all of this, God is trustworthy. Do you know this God? Again, I ask, who are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? If it isn't Jesus Christ and the new covenant in his blood, then you're in trouble, my friend. The reason David isn't afraid in judgment is because of God's steadfast love towards him. And the reason the Christian sitting here this morning is not afraid is because of that same steadfast love poured out in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ our Lord. David reminds us this morning that we can trust God. Christian, this is your God. Trust him. Pray with me. So, Father, as we've listened to your word preached, and as we've considered the trust that David has called us to, I pray, Lord God, that you would glorify yourself in it, that as we wait patiently for you to act in all of our trouble and suffering and persecution, that day would come when we might rejoice and say, this is my rock, my mighty fortress, my God. And do all of this, Lord, for your glory and for our good. Amen.